This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Leif Anger, author of three novels, Peace Like a River, So Brave, Young, and Handsome, and Virgil Wander. Leif Anger worked as a reporter and producer for Minnesota Public Radio before he wrote his first novel. His latest book, Virgil Wander, tells the story of a small town in Minnesota called Greenstone, which has seen better times. The mines have closed, work is scarce, and the economy is bad. However, a sense of community thrives with Virgil Wander at the center. Wander works as a part-time city clerk and owns a not-so-successful one-screen movie theater called The Empress. The novel opens after Virgil has had a serious car accident and his language ability and memory have been compromised. We began the discussion with Leif Anger explaining the origin of Virgil Wander, a novel he worked on for 10 years. The genesis goes back much further than 10 years um, in, the way that, in the way that life works. Um, in 1992, my wife Robin and I went down to Florida to visit with her parents who had retired down there. And we um, got out of their hair one night and went to a movie theater to see a picture. And the reason I remember it was 92 is the picture was White Men Can't Jump. I don't remember a thing about it. Uh, But uh, the theater we went to was in this little town in central Florida. um, And it was a theater quite a bit like the Empress. It it had, um, you know, a little art deco marquee um, poking out over the sidewalk. It had broken neon. It had... Uh, it was it was very slump-shouldered. It was down at the heels. Uh, when you walked in, it smelled like mold or moss. Um, there was actually police ribbon um, sort of cordoning off a corner of the lobby because he was fixing a hole in the floor. He didn't want anyone to fall through. And and the owner was a guy about our own age. He was in his, I would say, late 20s, who uh, had leveraged himself to the hill to to buy this theater. Uh, because it was his dream and because he wanted to do something for his little town, which at that point did not have a multiplex. Maybe it does now. Um, and so he had bought this theater and he was pouring all of his love and resources into it. Um, and before the picture started, he went down in front and he stood in front of the closed curtain and he kind of rubbed his hands together like a, like a mad scientist and said, welcome to my theater. And then he, told us in the audience, by which I mean, you know, 10 or 11 people, that um, that he was putting every penny he made into new seats. And in a good month, he would he would put a block of four new seats in. Um, and when he was done with the new seats, he was going to, you know, replace the roof because sometimes in hard rain it would leak. Um, and after the roof, he was going to have the screen professionally cleaned because the people of his town deserved visual uh, clarity. You know, uh, so, I mean, he was he was obsessed with this mission that he had to provide a place and some entertainment or maybe just a couple of quiet hours in a cool place um, for the, the, the folks in his little town in Florida. And it just impressed me. I don't remember the movie, but I remember that guy. And, um, you know, when you when you run into someone who is just full on what they are, such a condensed version of what they are. Uh, you sort of slide that person into your pocket and keep them till you need them. Um, so after after my second novel, um, So Brave, Young, and Handsome, which came out in 2008, 
I was casting about for what to do. And I remembered that man um, so fondly. Uh, and and I wanted to write about him. So um, so I put him in a, in a place up on the north shore of Lake Superior um, that I felt really needed him. Uh, a town that's on the rocks, a town that had been sort of on the rocks for a long time because of the nature of the boom and bust mining economy. And the two seemed to really work well together. So that was the genesis of the story. You know, I haven't even looked online to see if your town in your book is a real town. It's not. I, I figured if I said it in a real town, I'd be setting myself up. <laughs> because then, you you know, you, you sort of owe it to the town to get a lot of things right. Uh, whereas if you just make it up out of whole cloth, you can do anything you like with it. So uh, I basically went up through those towns up there, and there are many of them. Um, and they tend to be small. They tend to be <laughs> largely unemployed. And, and they tend to be achingly beautiful, um, even if they're a little trashy around the edges. And, you know, that, that inner tension that a town has when it's in a beautiful place, but you can't make a living there. That that seemed to be a, a good sort of seed of tension from which a good story could grow. In your novel, Virgil Wander, I see as much of a main character as the town itself. Tell us a little bit about Virgil and who he is, and then tell us a little bit about the town and what you wanted that to represent. Well, Virgil, for me, every story has to start with a good character because I tend to write in the first person. Uh, it's where I'm happiest. It's kind of my wheelhouse. And and uh, so I wanted it to be, a. I wanted this main character to be someone I could identify with, someone I could uh, root for, someone with all kinds of flaws, but, um, but not flaws that make you despise him, um, flaws that kind of put you on his side. So Virgil is a middle-aged man who, moved to this town as a young man after tragedy struck his family. Virgil lost his parents when he was 17 um, and has carried a a certain amount of of guilt around with him for most of his life because uh, his parents were on a mission trip, uh, sort of a church mission trip to Mexico that they begged him to go along on. He did not have any interest in going. Um, So they were on the train that derailed in the Mexican Canyon and cost them their lives. And Virgil is is left by himself. He has an older sister who uh, sort of appears now and then by telephone um, in the book, uh, and who has who has acted for him as a kind of um, at times conscience. And so, when Virgil was 21 and received his inheritance from his parents, he needed to put it to use. He had to find a place to go and spend his his tragic inheritance. And he, by that point, had been through a theology school uh, in an effort to try to uh, discern the reason that his parents, uh, who were after all going off to uh, to serve the Lord, uh, to, to serve uh, a loving God, uh, had in that service been senselessly killed, um, Virgil, to, to make sense of that himself, uh, went off and studied theology with, with what he calls forensic intensity. Um, and, and was unable to find any answers. Uh, eventually, one of his professors turned him on to, um, to cinema uh, as a way of arriving at some sort of peace, because the answers, uh, cinema is not like life um, devoid of, of answers. <laughs> cinema asks smaller questions. Uh, what's that noise in the forest? And so on. 
is it going to reach her in time? And those questions can be answered in the, in the course of two hours. So Virgil began to take comfort in cinema. And when he's presented with the opportunity to buy a small foundering theater in a little town in a beautiful place, um, he, he can see no other course for himself. So he lands in this, in this um, small town running this theater as a young man and then stays for 25 years. And it's after the 25 years that, you know, the thing is set in motion um, that, that provides the, the thread for this, for this story, which is his accident and his head injury uh, that gives him a new, uh, a new look at his life and his world. The town of Greenstone, um, you know, I, I was not trying to build a community that would represent any particular uh, thing. I was just trying to go where the story took me. Um, and I was trying to write a town that struck me as being um, pretty honest and, and pretty true to the way life is in a small town. And that is almost all I know, Mitzi. I mean, I, I, I grew up in a town of 1,300 people. Um, I went to college in a, in a huge uh, city of 100,000 um, and then and then moved back to a small town and, and remained there until this summer when Robin and I moved over here to Duluth. Um, so small town life is not hard for me to, uh, to understand or to, or to sympathize with. Uh, it doesn't really represent uh, anything except most of the reality that I know. So uh, I can't give you a very writerly answer about that one. <laughs> Greenstone doesn't really, uh, I mean, to the extent that it represents something, um, that's just organic and came about of its own accord. In the end, we read for the for the human elements and, and in your town in Greenstone, Minnesota, you kind of covered the gamut. I mean, we had the obsessed fishermen. We had some town council members. Virgil works part-time as a, as a city clerk. We meet the sheriff. We meet the sort of forgotten son who made a success of himself and came back but is a little creepy and mysterious. Mm-hmm. And all these characters are sort of interacting to create a life. And what's interesting to me a little bit about small towns is that you might not like everyone, but you all still need each other and have to get along and accept each other's quirks, I think, more readily than if you lived in a big area and could just let them go. I think there might be some truth to that. You know, small towns get painted all the time as small-minded and provincial. And no question there's that element, you know, there's that uh, that tribalism that exists in small towns. But but that exists everywhere, um, you know, as we've really seen uh, in the last few years. And, you know, just to give you an example, five years ago, I got suddenly uh, and severely ill. Um, and I just, I, I dropped 20 pounds in two weeks and no doctor could figure out what was going on. And I ended up in the hospital down in Minneapolis uh, where they diagnosed fungal meningitis, which is very tough to diagnose. Once they've got it diagnosed properly, they can treat it. Um, thank God, and they did. Um, but it took me months um, to recover. And during those months, I was unable to do a lot of uh, the work around our farm that normally uh, I would be doing. So um, so there I was, unable to get off the couch. And Robert and I, we tend to be sort of um, middle-of-the-road people. That is, uh, we're not too far to the political right or the political left. We tend not to have too many political discussions with people because 
That's my long habit. I was a journalist for many years before I started writing fiction. And as a journalist, you um, you don't define yourself by your politics. Uh, and you, you strive to see all sides of a situation. Uh, so we had friends who were way off to the right and, uh, you know, rural Minnesota and other friends who were way off to the left. And when I got sick and couldn't get off the couch, um, all of those people came to, to our aid without being asked. They just showed up. They were there. They did whatever they could. They brought us food. Um, they looked out for us in a way that was really moving to me and really incredibly useful to Robin because I was pretty useless at that point. It just drove home to me, I think, that we're kind of a divided country right now, but if you really listen to somebody, if you get to know them at all, it doesn't take long to discover that their politics are sort of the, the least interesting thing about them. <laughs> They're interested in lots of other stuff as well, uh, and that's kind of who they are. So I think that's what kind of informs this story and why it's, for the most part, an empathetic story um, and, a, and a kind-hearted story is because that has been my experience. One thing you mentioned earlier was that in this world of cinema, one of the things that you like about it or that you recognize about it is that it asks smaller questions. If cinema asks smaller questions, what questions did you want your book to ask? <laughs> well, I think there are several. Um, one question that I seem to ask in all of my books is, what if, uh, what if the world is larger than we, than we can see with our eyes? Uh, what things are we not noticing? What things are right in front of us that we're not noticing? And I mean that both in a physical sense, you know, just one thing that, that happens after Virgil's accident is he becomes a better listener. Uh, maybe it's because his language is abridged. He lost his adjectives and the power to describe. And I think that makes him someone who is more apt to listen to people, more apt to ask questions and to pay attention to their answers. Not that he was a poor listener before, I suspect, but now he's quite a good one. And the result is that people, um, people tell him things that, that otherwise they might not. He becomes, in some ways, a confessor. And I love that. Uh, I love that about him and his new sort of vulnerable state. So I guess uh, one question that I want the book to ask is, what's right in front of you that, that you might be able to do something about if you listened a little more closely, opened your eyes a little bit, a little bit wider, um, it's quite a wide-eyed book for that reason. And then, and then also, in the, um, in the spiritual sense or the mystical sense, what should we be open to that we are, from which we've closed ourselves off? You know, the world is a big place. It's a beautiful place. It feels, it feels like a gift to me. Um, and if that is so, then how can we best take care of it? What should we be seeing that we don't? I guess those are the big questions, I, uh, or the small questions, if you will, that, that, that I hope the book asks of its readers. Yeah, and I think about um, that notion of what are you not seeing or what can you be more open to seeing is that in the book there are some intimations of, of ghosts. There's real ghosts. One of the main plot lines is that there was a young man named Alec who was a very good pitcher in minor league baseball, and he disappears in a plane crash. So that sort of the ghost of him 
is lies over the town because there's no answers about where he went and what happened to him. And we see his father coming who um, never met him. And he learned that he had the son after this young man died. And so he comes to this town from Norway to search for him. And so a lot of this book is is the recreation of a person and who that is. And we also see some ghosts. You know, we have Virgil's parents that have died. He he has some visions of things that he's seeing that he's not quite sure about. There's other characters in the book that have death around them. One thing is, you know, in in a small town, no doubt in any town, um, but small towns are my experience. Small towns are full of of ghosts and mythological characters. You know, you've you've always got um, the sort of wild kid that goes off and 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 does things that people talk that you know usually younger boys talk about, right? Um, growing up where I did in um, in western Minnesota, Lake Country, um, there were these two older guys seven or eight years older than me. And every fall they would, um, <laughs> they would apparently get in their car and go racing across Lake Osakis as soon as there was half an inch of ice, just a skim of ice over the top. Well, everybody knows that's foolhardy and dangerous and people die every year doing that kind of thing in northern latitudes. Um, but these two guys were just, they were local myths. They were, um, they were heroes. We looked up to them because every year they did this thing in November when there was just starting to be ice. And it wasn't really winter until Tommy and Darwin went off and, and, uh, and raced across the ice. Now, did they actually do it? I have no idea. Did they, did they do it many times? Did, did they do it once and let on that they did it many times? I have no idea. All I know is that when I was in seventh grade, we couldn't shut up about those guys. And we, and we made up new escapades for them. They were, they were local heroes um, to those of us who were younger. And I think that these sort of characters are signposts on a map. Uh, if you live in a little town, they, uh, they are places to begin. And so, um, you know, when I was writing this book, I was thinking about who are the big, who are the big characters in town? Uh, who are the mysteries? Uh, who are the ghosts? And, uh, and and so I had to start with that. I just, that's why Alec comes so early in the book, because I was just trying trying to to uh, to figure out who he was and the impact he was going to have on the story. What I kind of love about that is that the chance to inject a character who's been dead for ten years and make him really pivotal, even ten years dead, Alec Sandstrom has the power to call from across the ocean the father he had that he never met. I think all of us have these. Um, these spirits in our lives that we pay attention to and that we need somehow. Certainly Alec is the, is the chief ghost that drifts over, over the town of Greenstone and, and provides a kind of a presiding spirit to the story. But as you say, there are others as well. In some way, too, Virgil's living with his own ghost. And that was one of the questions that the book brought up for me. And what I mean by that is, in, in, as you mentioned, when the book opens, he's just had a very bad accident where he his car went over a cliff and lands in a lake and he's saved, but he hit his head and so he doesn't have great memories. His language capacity is diminished. He can't remember adjectives. 
And right. he, you open the book and the first section is called Previous Tenant. And Virgil sort of refers to his life as he was a previous tenant in his own body. And so it really made me think about how many lives we live within one body. When I was thinking about Virgil Wander, uh, and in the first draft, and you, you asked right off the top, you know, um, uh, you pointed out that the book was 10 years in the writing. It was, and, and the reason, uh, the biggest reason is that I had to write it twice. Uh, and the reason I had to write it twice was because in the first draft, which I wrote in the third person from shifting viewpoints, I did have um, a theater owner, a man who owned the Empress. His name then was Roy. Um, and he was not damaged. Uh, he was he was someone who was, you know, just a, a regular small town guy. And he, his character arc was indeterminate to me because um, he he wasn't working from a position of weakness. He was trying to right the wrongs around him, but he didn't really change himself. So when I came out of my illness um, and started writing the book again, because then, you know, after when I was sick, I didn't open my laptop for, for three months. When I did and I reread the pages that I had, uh, I realized that the thing was inert and that I could no longer um, I could no longer work on that draft. I needed to start again with a different voice. I would say that when I came back from my own illness, after months of fever um, and and weight loss, I felt very much like a ghost in my own life. And I felt very much like my character uh, should reflect um, the state that I was in. I felt like I was about a third of myself. And as I worked on Virgil Wander, I found real real strength and solace in just saying what I was feeling, which was, uh, I'm not really here. Someone else is here now. And so page by page, I let Virgil rediscover himself, look at his world through a different pair of eyes, and now and then reflect on who he had been before and the difference that his accident had made. What I came to by the end uh, was not only that Virgil had um, sort of not just recovered, but become a different person entirely. And I felt like the same thing had sort of happened to me through, through writing about Virgil and through just time and recovery that I had become a different sort of man uh, as well. So I think that, uh, you know, we live these different lives partly just because we're given no choice. We're given second chances because they are thrust upon us. That doesn't mean that they are, that they are unwelcome necessarily. You may not want that second chance when, you know, after you first go over the cliff, you know, if you're suffering an injury and trying to come back, that second chance doesn't seem very welcome. But in Virgil's case, it was. And in my case, I realized it was. Uh, so I think I think what you're talking about, living different lives, it's the process that we all go through, I suspect, of reinventing when we most need to. You know, it's the thing that it's the thing that falls on us out of the sky sometimes. It was for me and it was for Virgil Wander. Could you describe how you changed? I think um I think I became I think I became less introverted. I think I became more willing to just engage with people. You know, writers do tend to be kind of inward looking. Uh, and that did not entirely change. But just for an example, it was after I came out of that illness that Robin and I began to look at each other and say, maybe we should move. I mean, we had lived for 21 years uh, on a farm on a dead end road where we couldn't see, you know, any light pollution from any nearby towns at night. 
Uh, we couldn't see any smoke from a neighbor's chimney. <laughs> you know, it was like Pa Ingalls out there. It was, it was wonderful. It was quiet. Uh, I loved it. It was a great place to raise the kids. But after, after my sickness, it began to feel isolated. Uh, began to feel um, like a place without, without community. You know, it really wasn't. I mean, we had friends. Um, we had friends in nearby towns that we got together with. But it, it began to seem like, like not enough. After a few years uh, of that, we came to the point where we said to each other, we're, we're going to move. We're going to go find, uh, we're going to find a neighborhood to be part of. That strikes me now as a very Virgil Wander-like change to make. You know, Virgil, Virgil finds himself regarding his neighbors in a new light, uh, meeting strangers in a way that he didn't used to do, and, and making a family out of some of them. In your book, you have a character named Adam Lear. He grew up in this small town. He left and had some success in Hollywood and came back. But he's sort of a, a harbinger of, of bad luck. He's sort of, I saw him in some ways as sort of a Lucifer character. And yeah. I'm wondering if you think people can just be haunted in this life or just bring bad luck to all those who touch them or if he was sinister. I think that um, I think I think Adam is pretty sinister. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do. I, I don't. I don't know that I believe in uh, in a character who is necessarily cursed. Uh, I don't think that's. I don't think that's really a thing, Mitzi. But but uh, I do think that there are people who are at heart evil. I don't think there are many, but I think there are a few um, who are wicked uh, to their to their core, and. Uh, I love playing around with characters like that in fiction. Uh, God knows I, I don't I don't love doing it in real life. Uh, but but in fiction, uh, someone like that can really enliven a story. And <laughs> because we all have we all have responses to the kinds of people that we run into. And I wanted to see what would happen in a town that was already haunted by bad luck, uh, as Greenstone is. When this native son comes home, um, and just dreadful things seem to happen wherever he goes, um, and I love his uh, his, you know, he knows what he is, and he takes a lot of pleasure in what he is. He takes a lot of joy in in, in being that sort of a man, um, and so I I stirred him in, um, not just to get the the story uh, going. Um, but in order to see what kind of responses people would have to him. Uh, and it was enormous fun. You know, the, the wicked characters in the story are usually the, the ones that we remember the longest. <laughs> if you think about Treasure Island, you know, the great Robert Louis Stevenson pirate story, hardly anybody remembers that the narrator was a kid named Jim Hawkins. They remember the Long John Silver <laughs> because he was so compelling. And he wasn't this sort of cinema pirate uh, who was, you know, kind of weaving around like Jack Sparrow. He was, he was none of that. Uh, Long John was, he was just absolutely violent and wicked and political. He would change sides at the drop of a hat. He, he murders that one guy by throwing his crutch at him. I mean, he, he murders a guy with a crutch. He's just beyond belief. And I absolutely adore him. He's a wonderful character. Um, every couple of years, I reread that book just so I can be around Long John again. And I think that's how I think that's how the really good writers treat their villains. Uh, they they uh, they treat them with a lot of love and respect. 
<laughs> I think that we love Long John because because Robert Louis Stevenson loved Long John. So I always I strive to be fair to my my wicked characters. You mentioned that you were a journalist, and I know you worked in public radio. Did that prepare you for writing? And if so, how? I think it was great training, um, probably in a couple of ways. Uh, one is just in terms of the writing process itself. I had wonderful editors at Minnesota Public Radio who made sure that my sentences were clean and they weren't all littered with adverbs and, and adjectives. They they taught me to write, you know, just um, in a way that moved the story forward quickly. You know, when you're writing three and a half minute <clears throat> radio stories, you can't be um, flowery. <laughs> Story has to get from point A to point B and do so in kind of a hurry. And that was ter- just tremendous training. The thing that I think was just as important as that, and maybe more so, was it gave me training in, um, I would say, empathy. And, uh, you know, you don't really think of journalism as an empathetic profession. Uh, but I think oftentimes it is. I mean, I would get sent out to interview people um, on every side of a story. And often I dreaded that. I dreaded it because I think, oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to personally agree with this guy. I'm, I, I know what this guy stands for. It's all odious. I'm, I'm not going to enjoy this. Um, but almost without exception, um, if if I just listened to the guy for five minutes or to the woman for five minutes, I would start to see their point of view. I might not agree, but I nearly always began to like them and to understand why they were what they were. That's enormous training. That's great training for life in general, uh, but also for fiction writing, because um, approaching a fictional character is a lot like approaching a real person. Uh, in that, if you are thinking, well, here's just somebody who's there to be bad, and um, and so I'm going to make this person as unlikable as possible. Uh, well, I, I, I've read novels where that's the whole point, and they never feel lifelike to me. They don't feel full and rounded whole. They feel like um, those characters feel like mouthpieces for something the author's trying to get across. I, I don't enjoy reading things like that. I enjoy when, when the characters feel like they're genuine people that you would meet on the sidewalk. And, and I think it was reporting that um, taught me how to be an empathetic listener. And as a fiction writer, that's incredibly valuable. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? I had a lot of fun thinking about this. I'm just going to read you the first paragraph, which is pretty short, but this is the opening of the great Charles Portis novel, uh, True Grit. People do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood, but it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. I was just 14 years of age when a coward going by the name of Tom Cheney shot my father down in Fort Smith, Arkansas, and robbed him of his life and his horse and $150 in cash money, plus two California gold pieces he carried in his trouser band. Here is what happened. Well, (laughs) Uh, where to start with that? I mean, I remember reading that book. I don't even know the year of its publication, but I remember reading that book aloud to my sons when they were little kids. And the book is just stuffed with peril and incident and suspense and characters that don't fit any single mold. And even the great Rooster Cogburn, the protagonist, goes off at the end of the story and, as Maddie says, um, does himself no honor in the Johnson County War. And these two kids of ours, 
were wrapped. I mean, they leaned forward into this story for the four or five evenings it took to read it aloud. And I think that has been a key thing for me in writing uh, so far. You know, it, it also kind of introduced me to the, to the proper use of, of the first person. Uh, it's pleasure and, and ease, the most natural of all storytelling methods. Matty Ross actually says, here's what happened. And usually that's implied, but it's how the best and most immediate stories almost always start. And it, I think, lets you establish your protagonist from within. If you listen to Maddie's voice, people do not give it credence. A 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off and, you know, boom, in the first sentence, you know exactly who she is. You know exactly that she's a person of determination and humor and absolutely no self-esteem problems, whatever. Big chip on her shoulder that kind of defines Maddie. She knows all the important details of the story she's about to tell, the gold pieces in the trouser band, and every page is just shiny with these details, uh, which somehow are not overwhelming, but instead tell of their kind of inherent value to this smart kid, Maddie Ross. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Absolutely. This is a, a short passage from my novel, Virgil Wander. So Virgil, I mean, to set this up, we've been talking about Virgil, a bachelor with few prospects in a dying town. And his best friend, Alex Sandstrom, died 10 years ago, banished 10 years ago. And ever since then, Virgil has been sort of quietly in love with, with Alex's wife, Nadine. Think of this, a decade in love, and he's never told her. Um, instead, kind of imagining her, uh, casting her in his mind as a kind of Penelope, um, you know, fending off lumpen suitors and their BMWs and so forth. So here's a scene where he remembers encountering her, and this has made it difficult for them ever since. I'd long found it difficult to speak with Nadine. It shouldn't have been. We were all friends. But early on, less than a year after Alec vanished, I made a key mistake. We were both at the post office, waiting in line, not really talking, but just idling while the creaky postmaster wafted around the back room hunting somebody's mail. A sleepy malaise fell over the post office. An interval passed. Abruptly, I realized I was holding Nadine's hand. What a thing to find yourself doing. When had I reached for her? What must she have thought? I don't remember what I said, but I'm confident it was stupid. Maybe she laughed. Maybe I should have laughed, but didn't. Maybe I turned away and waited for the postmaster and finally sent whatever I was sending that day. How did this happen? What did it mean? I would answer differently now, but then, in my fraught solitude, it meant I had lost track of myself. It meant... I was no different from the hapless entrepreneurs and BMW owners and polyester track guys who thought the lovely widow should be that night's entertainment and maybe appear on next year's Christmas card. In fact, it meant I was worse than them. And by quite a bit, they were only unworthy. As Alex's good friend, I was also disloyal. Her hand, though, that capable hand holding mine right there in the post office, I never forgot the cool strength of her fingers. So that's actually kind of a crucial scene, Mitzi, and, and it replaced, uh, you asked whether it it was hard to come by, it replaced a, a, an entire chapter that I had written in the earlier draft. Um, and no kidding, I, I spent 12 or maybe 15 pages developing this unrequited love story. It just went on and on. 
Uh, it got sadder and sadder, and I just absolutely loved it uh, and somehow did not see until that draft was finished that uh, this idea was only going to have power if it were presented briefly and in a little bit of a funny way or a poignant way. And it was one of lots of places that I really truncated or shrunk something down in order to give it some punch. So often things work if they're quick and they go by fast and, they're, uh, and, the, and the words are carefully chosen. Than if you go on and on for pages. Where do you write? I write in um, in an office in the second floor of our house, uh, overlooking the backyard, <clears throat> the back alley that goes behind the garage, and facing the row of houses on the other side. And what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? In the summertime, Robin and I go sailing a lot. We uh, we live an hour and a half from Bayfield, Wisconsin, um, which is on Lake Superior, and we we keep a uh, a heavy old sailboat there. And so we, we go sailing in the summer, get away from everything, get away from riding, and just enjoy the wind and the sun. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to Robin. She is my first reader. And, uh, and she is a great reader and merciless. <laughs> so I make sure that's fairly clean before she sees it. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, the old way. I mean, you, you, I just have a thicker skin than I used to. There's always going to be people who don't like your work. And, you know, there are going to be some readers who, who don't, I imagine, and there are going to be some critics who don't. Um, uh, but increasingly, my work is um, it's just important to me. And if, if, I, if I love it when I'm done, I feel I've done my job. And what is your favorite word? <laughs> Well, let's see. We were just talking about sailing, and, and so right now my, my favorite word is uh, is windward, windward. And that's, uh, you know, when you're going upwind, you're going into the teeth of, uh, of a gale, and the waves are coming at you. Um, there's a joy in sailing that way, going against the wind and the waves, and still making headway. That's the beauty of it. A lot of people don't realize that you can sail against the wind. They think you just go wherever the wind blows. But no, when you pull the sails in tight, to the center of the boat, um, and you turn the rudder up into the wind, you can make great headway against, uh, against all kinds of things. Uh, so windward is my favorite at the moment. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest was Leif Anger, author of the novel Virgil Wander. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.